Feel the pulse of the city. Feel the beat of the drum. Feel the bass blow your hair. In Las Vegas, live music delivers much more than sound. It's where music comes alive. With artists like Megan Thee Stallion, Maroon 5, Carrie Underwood, Shania Twain, Babyface, Lionel Richie, and many more. Every show is a playground for your senses. See the full summer lineup at visitlasvegas.com. Myrtle Beach is the beach. 60 miles of bright sand, water, and a wealth of wonderful music playing day and night. You can step into a simple beach bar and discover a surprising level of exciting musical talent. A place to kick back and groove to the enticing soundtrack of the most unexpected vacations around. With nothing but good vibes floating through the warm ocean air. Plan your own music-filled trip to America's Jukebox at visitmyrtlebeach.com. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. Like that car riding right your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on AutoTrader too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. And now, now, prepare yourself for the only talk radio show you'll want to turn up. Crank this thing. Sirius XM Pandora presents the place where your hard rock and metal voice can still be heard. You got your ass, Unfiltered, uncensored, say whatever you want. Hit the record button. Anything can happen, you know? I know that ain't nobody out there came to be mellow tonight, now did you? I say, I say there ain't nobody. I say there ain't nobody not out there that even wants to be a little bit mellow, now is there? This is the Trunk Nation Podcast with host A. Trunk. What's up, everybody? It's Eddie Trunk here, and welcome to another episode of the Eddie Trunk Podcast. New every Thursday, anywhere you get your podcast, totally free. Thank you for subscribing. Thank you for listening. Hope you are having a great one. And uh, hey, like I tell you guys every week, everything you hear on the Eddie Trunk Podcast originated Live on my Sirius XM radio show, Trunk Nation, heard Monday through Friday, live 3 to 5 Eastern, noon to 2 Pacific, Sirius XM channel 103, Faction Talk, or anytime live or on demand on the Sirius XM app. Tell you guys every week, same old story. If you only listen to this podcast and you're in the U.S. or Canada where you can get Sirius XM, you're only getting a tiny fraction of what I do on the radio live each and every weekday. So uh, come on board, and we make it real easy for you. You can join us and get a free three-month trial subscription to SiriusXM and sample my show, Trunk Nation, totally free, no credit card required. For more information on that, just go to SiriusXM.com slash Eddie Trunk. Come on board and try it out. Maybe with the uh, holiday season here, maybe some new people coming on board, getting a SiriusXM subscription. Whatever it may be, welcome. Thank you for joining us. And if you're not doing so already, try that uh, free trial. Come on board and hear the actual radio show where these interviews originate. So much more going on live each and every day. Love to have you on board. On social media, at Eddie Trunk, Twitter or X, Instagram, Facebook page, 
eddietrunk.com is the website. For those of you in New Jersey and the surrounding area, I do my annual Christmas party with my That Metal Show partners, Don Jameson and Jim Florentine. We've been doing this for at least 10, 15 years now. Dingbats, Clifton, New Jersey. The uh, holiday party for 2023 is happening. Well, if you're listening to this on post day, it's happening on Friday, uh, the Friday before Christmas. So come on out and join us at Dingbats in Clifton. Should be a lot of fun. Some bands jamming, and we're just hanging out, having a drink, and enjoying the holidays with everybody. Again, that's all going down uh, this coming Friday. So, again, depending upon what day you're listening, we go up on Thursday. The next day, the Friday before Christmas, is what I'm talking about. Other stuff coming up, uh, hosting Mr. Big January 12th in Houston at Rise Rooftop. And then from there, it's over to Rock Island. And, uh, oh, before that, let me remind you guys that I'll be at the Whiskey in Los Angeles leading into New Year's Eve. You've got a show there with Stephen Piercy on the 29th of December and a show with Faster Pussycat there on the 30th of December. I'll be hosting both of those. So if you're in Southern California, see you just before the new year. So a lot of stuff going on. Rock Island coming up soon. Uh, Monsters of Rock Cruise coming up soon. All sorts of great stuff. And uh, even a charity event that was recently announced that I'll be doing Uh, at the uh, Canyon Club in Agora Hills. So I hope you guys join me for that. It's to uh, pay tribute to Leslie West, and that is going to be a a great event for somebody that we certainly love and miss. It's happening January 23rd at the Canyon Club, Agora Hills, California, charity event for Leslie West raising funds for Music Cares. So join us for that. Also, January 24th in Anaheim, California, I'll be hosting the annual Heavy Metal Hall of Fame ceremony. So looking forward to that as well. I'll keep you posted on everything on my social media. The uh, interview that we have for you this week is with Tom Werman. And I always love talking to record producers because you get a different perspective and you get a different story often than what you get from the artists. And Tom Werman is no exception. Some interesting stuff in this conversation. Tom Werman has produced massive records for Twisted Sister, Motley Crue, Cheap Trick, Molly Hatchet, Ted Nugent, many, many others. He has a really interesting story. He has an autobiography out now about his career. He is retired, and he's written a great book about producing records and how he got involved in uh, with these artists. And you're going to hear all about it, including some very candid, unfiltered uh, stories about what it was like working with some of these artists early on. So Tom Worman, a producer spotlight. Trust me, if you don't know his name just by saying it, there's no way if you're a rock fan, you don't have a record in your collection produced by Tom Worman, and he's got the stories to tell you all about it. So happy to bring you that conversation, which again originated like everything on my radio show a few weeks ago on Sirius XM. Now happy to bring it to you as a podcast. And it's a pretty good long one, so let's get to it right now. Tom Worman on this week's Eddie Trunk Podcast. Tom, how are you, buddy? I'm great, and and it's so uh, it's great to be here because you know I just carry I carry you and about uh, I don't know ten or twelve other uh, Sirius XM stations around with me in my car, and that's all I listen to. Um, so it's great. I I never well, thought I'd I'd be heard. 
on Sirius. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to be the catalyst for that. I, you know, you were on once a few years ago. It was before this book was made. I know we were just talking about your career and stuff, and I, I know I enjoyed that conversation. So, And I think at that time, if I remember, you may have mentioned to me that you were working on the book, and uh, I said, well, great, we'll have to do something when it comes out. And, you yeah. know, there's so many books out these days, and it's, it's hard because I don't have time to read them all, but I like to obviously right. read them before I talk to whoever wrote them, but I did manage to read yours. And, and it was, as they say in the business, a, a page turner. And I really enjoyed it. Um, tell me about your decision to write this, Tom. I mean, you've been uh, in the business for a really long time. Why did you do it now? Well, you know, uh, I left in, in 2000, I left the business. I became an innkeeper. Uh, but I saw, uh, you know, maybe five, 10 years ago, there began to be an increasing number of, of, uh, people who were interested in either having an interview or a podcast or, um, uh, you know, the streaming numbers started to get bigger and whole families were listening to classic rock and classic rock stations popped up all over the country. And I did a podcast on one album uh, a few years ago that got over 150,000 hits and, I said, wow, there's there's a lot of curiosity out there about uh, music from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And uh, and also, uh, you know, comparing it to the music of today, um, I, I thought it would be nice to memorialize the era, uh, you know, of, of classic rock and, and honestly try to try to tell the reader why he or she should love the music that I love and that, that, that I was part of. I think the, uh, while rock will never die, I think the classic rock era was finite, you know, started somewhere in the early sixties and ended somewhere in the early nineties for me. Mm -hmm. uh, so I just wanted to get it all down before, uh, I, my old brain forgot everything. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, speaking of the, the, the real classic era of rock that's kind of alluded to in the title when you say the glory days of rock music. And I would agree with you. I mean, you started yeah. in it a bit earlier than I did, but still, I mean, I was, I, I jumped in professionally at least in 83 and I would agree with you that that, that was the period for sure. Um, you know, you talk about how long you've been out of it and what you do now uh, running a, an inn and all of that. Yeah. And I, and I think that's great, but, what I found interesting about the book is how you started because you, I think what, when you read down your resume and you, I rattled off just some of the bands and records you've produced, people might be surprised to learn when they read the book that that was never really your mission statement. I mean, you started out in what advertising, right? For an agent ad agency. Unhappily, that is correct. And how did you make that transition? I know because I read the book, but tell the audience how you go from that because you, you ended up getting a job signing bands initially as an A&R guy, and then you, you got your first taste of, quote-unquote, producing something because you were asked to do an edit on a song, right? Well, I, I kind of horned in on, uh, on, on Ted Nugent's uh, first record uh, sessions, and, and, you know, I didn't have a great deal of faith in the guy who was producing him. And I wanted to protect my investment. I had been turned down on, on three bands that, that had become huge 
So uh, the, the, my, my new boss uh, uh, asked me what I was interested in, and I said Ted Nugent. And I, so I really needed a hit at that point because I was an A&R man, and you have to come up. You know, it's publish or perish. So, you know, I, editing, yes, I, I did a lot of editing in my office, um, almost all of the singles after a certain point were edited by me, um, you know, from the albums that Epic released. Um, I'd, I'd, I'd take seven minute songs and get them down to three minutes and 20 seconds or something, you know, and by editing, I learned a lot about, about kind of seeing through the, uh, the music and, and, and uh, hearing all, all the, the instruments separately and knowing where to come in and come out. It was just a good, it was just good practice. Um, and bang, uh, fortunately, the album went platinum, the Ted's first one, and uh, and I was a producer. I just, I, I just want to emphasize that, uh, you know, for the audience, uh, Ted and I did not discuss politics, okay? <laughs> well, I, you know, you know, it's interesting, um, Tom, that you bring that up because I... I don't talk politics on this show because, again, I, I don't like to divide my audience, and I think there's enough of that in this world. But Ted yeah. is a friend, and I love Ted, and I'm a fan of his music. I think Ted is, uh, unfortunately, because of his position and his positions, he's been tremendously, I think, in some ways forgotten about That's as right. the musician and talent he is uh, because, yeah. because of all that. But Ted has been on this show countless times and we do nothing but talk about rock music. And he's such a historian of it too. He loves talking about the old guys and all of that. So for people that ask me, no matter yeah. where you land politically, it is possible, <laughs> believe it or not, to be friends and have relationships and work with people, no matter where you land on, you know, on that stuff. Well, that's what the, uh, the Ted Nugent chapter is, is all about. Uh, right. You know, strangely enough, uh, uh, Ted, or ironically enough, Ted uh, has just about uh, more. He, he has more integrity than ninety uh, percent of the people that I that I wound up working with, and we have had a musical friendship uh, for um, what is it now, fifty years, almost. 50 Tom. Years. Let me jump in on that real quick. I'm curious about this because I got to know Ted in like the last 20 years really well. He texts me, we talk, he's been on all my shows. But what, I know that Ted in the last 20 years is this guy with this boundless energy and this total character and unfiltered oh, yeah. and all of that. When you met him as a much, much younger guy and signed him in the early 70s, mid 70s, was he the same type of guy? Absolutely. Well, <laughs> enjoying life to the very fullest, um, enjoying himself more than anybody I know. I mean, he was—he was—he's <laughs> right. always been the fastest mouth in the West. He's—he is always happy, it seems, unless he's debating politics. Um, and, and you know, he showed me uh, another side, another perspective um, about a lot of things. I, I went out to his farm in, in Hanover, Michigan. Uh, to discuss what was going to happen with the album, you know, and I said, Oh, I could never kill an animal, you know, and, and I can't, but he said, Tom, you eat hamburgers, don't you? <laughs> you know? And he said, you just have somebody else kill it for you. And, and he told me how he used the whole animal. He introduced me to firearms. 
you know, in in a very sensible uh, and practical way. Um, right. You know, uh, I, I turned into a liberal with guns. I mean, how do you do that? <laughs> Uh, so, you know, but he's like that. I mean, I'm the I'm the same way. I have friends that hunt deer and and shoot, you know, hunt and all that. I could never do it. I feel bad seeing a fish come out of the water yeah. gasping for air. I really do. But but exactly. I guess I could say I'm a hypocrite because I will go to a nice steakhouse and carve one up. So oh, yeah. uh, I that, oh, yeah. I I get how to, you know Ted <laughs> makes valid points on some of that stuff, and he does. I think he doesn't get the credit for doing all the charitable stuff that he does, and he gives that food to some to people who are struggling. So he does. There's a lot of things that people yeah. don't realize that Ted does because they look through it in just one lens. Yeah. He's a, a, a there, there's a word for that. Uh, somebody that's hard to explain. I, I, I'm forgetting that word at the moment. Enigma. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Well, I, I mean, we, there's so much. I, I mean, I've got some time here and I hope you do, because there's so much I want to cover oh, with you in this book. But sure. but I'm curious. So 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 you do Nugent and you you do these. Uh, that first album is still just an amazing record with Stranglehold and all of that. But looking yeah. at looking at my notes, Tom, uh, the first act that you signed, if I have this right, was Ario Speedwagon, right? That's right. About two months after I got to the label. Yeah. Now was now there was a version of the band early on that Kevin Cronin was not in. The version you signed was Kevin in yet or no? No. Terry Luttrell was the vocalist. Um, Gary Richrath was alive. He was the guitar player, a killer guitar player. Great band. Um, but you know, as with every band, they've been on the, uh, every band that's been on the road for 50 years, they, you know, they've had some forced personnel changes. Um, you know, I mean, Molly Hatchett is still appearing and, uh, you know, they're all dead. Uh, right. You know, so somebody with the name goes out and, and that's the deal, and that's what people today know as Molly Hatch. But, yeah. That, well, I don't think people realize that there was, at, in the very beginning, that even though Kevin is so identifiable with the band and obviously wrote their big hits and all that, that he actually yep. was not there originally. So the version of REO you signed, I imagine, back then, was probably a pretty different-sounding version of what the band ended up becoming when Kevin came in? It, it was harder. They 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 rocked a little harder. They weren't quite as you know melodic and lyrical, but but they were a killer band. They they blew the the roof off uh, at this uh, place called the Red Lion Inn in Champaign, Illinois. Um, they were they were just a, just a great band. Uh, I, I had very few doubts about signing them. Unfortunately, you know after that, I tried to sign Kiss, Rush, and Leonard Skinner. <laughs> And 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 my boss passed on all of them. So I was in a tough position. Uh, five years down the road, I had only signed REO Speedwagon. And uh, my new boss said, well, maybe Werman knows something that we don't because those three bands that my old boss had passed on had become huge. So he asked if I was interested in anything at the moment. And I said, well, yeah, Ted Nugent. So that's what started it all. You know, you talk about in the book a little bit. We have a, we spend a lot of time debating and talking about Kiss on this show. And I, I grew up an enormous Kiss fan, like most people my age did. You yeah. saw what you saw, though, 
was you actually saw Wicked Lester. Did you actually sign Wicked Lester, the pre-Kiss band? Yeah. Um, I, I went down to the, uh, you know, I sat in on a lot of uh, uh, sessions, and there was an independent engineer who had done uh, the record and wanted to um, somebody to buy it so he could finish it. Um, it was quite pop, very sugary, a lot of harmony choruses, you know, nothing at all like Kiss. Uh, the only thing in common was Gene and Paul, and 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 they, before we could release the album, the the band broke up, so the album went on the shelf, uh, you know, uh, indefinitely, and they called me a couple of months later and said, "Come on down, please, and and and, and see us again. We're we have a three piece," and uh, I took my boss and we went down to see them, and he didn't get it, so. Uh, I wanted to sign them uh, pretty badly, uh, but you know, I, at that point in my career, I I didn't have any influence. I didn't have any clout, you know. So, um, you know, I was just an, uh, another A and R guy, another talent scout. So, so you actually, so you actually, so you actually were there. You signed Wicked Lester, the first Gene Paul band. The record, as we know, sh- it was shelved. Although it stuff has come out from it, it's out there now, but. You you then see what sounds like the earliest version of Kiss before it was yeah. even a four piece before Ace came in, and right. do you have recollections about that? Was it a showcase or was it an actual gig? No, it was a very small. It was a private showcase. There were only three of us there: uh, myself, my boss, and one other A and R guy, and uh, the three of them. And uh, white face, uh, as I remember it, and uh, spandex, of course, and monster boots, and and uh, at the um, they played a set, a, a nice tight set, and then uh, at the end, Gene picked up this uh, galvanized bucket and and threw it at us. Not the bucket, but the contents, and uh, we all thought it was water, but it turned out to be silver confetti, and. And it was a great finish to uh, to a show that that had featured, you know, look these superhero guys in in makeup and and we I had never seen anything like that before. And the songs, you know, were catchy. You could sing them in the shower. So yeah, th- you know, this was a band that should have been signed by, um, you know, a big national label. Um, Don didn't. He he just didn't get it. We went down. You know, it was on 23rd Street in a rehearsal room that was, I think, one or two flights up. And when we got down to the sidewalk, he said, what the fuck was that? And uh, <laughs> You can say fuck. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, what the fuck was that, he said. And uh, I was bummed, you know. I, 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 I just didn't have the confidence to say, you're wrong. Um, you know, because if I had said that and fought for the band and they stiffed, I'd probably be out of a job. But you probably would have had the upper hand to sign them, though, because you had already been the guy that signed Wicked Lester. So they they may have they may have you already had a relationship there. So they may have given you, uh, you know, preferential uh, consideration at that point. But but what were you going to say? We were the only people there. So, you know, we could have signed them that night. Um, But. You know, with 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 uh, all three bands uh, that that uh, you know, Kiss uh, and Skinner and Rush, nobody else was interested when I got to see them. 
So, you know, it, it was relatively easy to uh, I, I can't remember any bidding wars, you know, or real competition for any of the bands uh, that I signed. Um, it, if you're there first and, you know, you're, you're sure about what you like, then then you, you can do it. It's not like uh, a, a bidding war or what happened with Guns N' Roses, you know, at the Roxy, uh, you, you know, the, every A&R guy in town was there. So, that, yeah, that, yeah, I, I had we could have done it easily and cheaply. You know, one other thing on Kiss, did, did you, so when they break up, you and the label, you'd sign this band, Wicked Lester, and the label had the record. Then yeah. how does it come to be, like when Kiss then, a few years later, becomes this huge band, and the whole anonymity thing was such a big deal for Kiss, mm-hmm. you, you guys as a label, is there pressure, I would imagine, internally for you to put that out and say, hey, Listen to this because everybody starts then looking for the early stuff or pre-stuff yeah. or demos or whatever. But but Gene and Paul actually bought the record back. Is that my understanding? Is that why it kind of got buried? Neil Bogart bought the record back for not a lot of money. I think it was what we paid for it. And I, I'm not sure why we never put it out, but it would have been a cheap trick, <laughs> if you'll pardon me, to do that because, you know, we would have benefited from their names and they would have been embarrassed about, I think, about about the the record. They would have lost some musical credibility. I just think it was a, it would have been a kind of a sleazy thing to do, even though record labels are generally not above doing right. these things. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> That's exactly so. my point, because there were plenty of records. Like, I was a huge fan of Billy Squire and his band before was called Piper and they had the two records on A&M and I worked uh-huh. in a record store and I remember after Billy broke as a solo artist suddenly those Piper records were reissued and they were relabeled Piper featuring Billy Squire so uh, the industry yeah. is pretty much you know littered with that but the big problem with Kiss if if the Wicked Lester record came out is you would have seen Gene and Paul and the the connection would have been made because again that anonymity thing with kiss in the 70s was such a huge deal it was yeah i mean i i don't know if it would have come out with a black label a a black album cover you know uh, or or with pictures but you know if we were going if epic had released it they would have wanted the biggest bang for the buck and i guess they would have really heavily publicized the fact that gene and paul you know, we're, we're in that band. That would be the only reason for, for Epic to release it. Otherwise, nobody, nobody would care. Another, another uh, artist that you talk about that you were in on a very, very early ground floor, but you couldn't get it. Well, I'm not sure what, I can't remember because it's been a little bit since I read the book. I can't remember the arc yeah. of what happened there. Uh, but Boston, that you, you oh, yeah. heard Boston and you heard Tom Schultz early on and what he was creating, right? Well, Lenny Pesey was the uh, original, uh, you know, he was the first guy to hear Boston because he knew their manager. And their manager came into the building after uh, visiting many labels, he said, that day and who had all passed. And I, and that was really hard to, for me to believe. And Lenny brought the, uh, the manager and the tape down to my office and said, Tom, could you... Um, listen to a few songs with us. I'd like to uh, know what you think about them. 
So we went into my boss's office, who was he was out of town. We 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 put on the cassette, and the first song was more than a feeling. And after two songs, I heard more than a feeling, and, and a second song. Just after he started the third song, I stopped the tape and I and I and I said, "Guys, is this candid camera? Because I, you know, I'm, I've never heard anything quite that good, and it was as good as a master. In fact, I'm 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 pretty sure they took the many tracks from that recording, and and just transferred those tracks onto, uh, you know, the 24 track tape." What um, you heard at the yeah, Tom, were, what you heard at this point, was it just what Tom Schultz had done, or was Brad Delp and everybody else on it already? They were on it. Uh, Brad was on it, but uh, right. I don't think I don't think anyone else had actually played on that demo. I think Tom did most or all of the playing. Um, guy was amazing, truly amazing, and and you know. You listen to the sound, and and people talk about the sound and the Rockman, and how and you know and how he kind of made um, major distortion acceptable uh, for AM radio, um, and they overlook his playing. I mean, the guy was the guy was an amazing player, and he and yeah. he wrote those beautiful beautiful lines, beautiful compositions. Um, it, you know, it was unbelievable. So I, I say that I co-signed the band because Lenny and I then went to uh, the Aerosmith uh, rehearsal room in in Waltham, Mass. And I think it was in Waltham, um, and we saw the band, and they uh, were able to reproduce the the recording well enough so that we said, okay, they can go on tour, they can support this album. Let's sign them, and and that was it. Sixteen million <laughs> copies of their first album. Well, at least you had a piece of that one. As that one didn't get totally away from you as well. There's uh, well, among the bands have, that you did. Go ahead, Tom. You didn't. Did you have points? I was, <laughs> was going to say, you know, uh, I didn't have a piece of that album. We didn't have uh, pieces of it of any album um, because. We were a and our guys, and our job description was go find hits. And right. so, you know, if, if, if you did something like that, maybe you'd get a little bonus at Christmas. Uh, but I didn't make any royalties uh, of, of any significance until I left uh, CBS in 1982. And then, you know, I'm, I made some legitimate money. But uh, no, yeah. If, if I had just made a dime on, on any on one of those records, you know, gee whiz, yeah, yeah, I yeah, yeah. Made a million, just so a million and a half on the first on the first record. Yeah, no, it's crazy. Uh, just so people know, I mean, Tom uh, started as an A and R guy, an A and R guy, then started doing some producing work, and then became then ended up leaving. CBS and became an independent producer. That's the arc of right. the career. And again, it's all covered in Turn It Up, My Time Making Hit Records and the Glory Days of Rock Music. We're talking with Tom Werman here live on Trunk Nation on Sirius XM. So let, let me get into a few other things, Tom, with the time that I have with you. Um, sure. Cheap Trick, a band yeah. that I love, you love, I think everybody universally loves and 
are also still friends and uh, great guys and still great live to this day, in my opinion. Um, just such an, I mean, and you, you did the second and third record. You did Heaven Tonight and In Color and Dream Police too, right? Yeah, right. I mean, you talk about the sweet spot, the glory years. I mean, that is just some unbelievable songs. Where did you first see Cheap Trick? Because you both signed them and produced them, right? Right. I, I had heard a, uh, a cassette that wasn't that great, and uh, I, didn't, I, I didn't go for it. And it was, on, it was a Cheap Trick cassette um, that somebody had, had handed to me, another guy who worked at Epic. And um, then Jack Douglas... Uh, you know, who produced Aerosmith and a number of other people, and you know, including John Lennon. Uh, and I respected him a lot, and he called me and he said, there's this band I'd like to produce, and I'd like you to go see them. Um, and he knew me from, you know, the Ted Nugent experience because he was producing Aerosmith, and Aerosmith and Ted were both managed by the same guy. So Jack called me, and and I hopped on a plane because, you know, I I respected him. And I went out to see them, and uh, then I came back and, and, and took my boss to see them, and we signed him. And I was scheduled to produce Eddie Money's first album, uh, and Jack couldn't free himself from the, mm. from the studio when, when uh, you know, after the first album. Um, he was he was stuck in there with Aerosmith, so I, you know, I I kind of got uh, I, I asked the president of CBS Records if he if he could free me from the Eddie Money thing, uh, and uh, I could do Cheap Trick instead, and that was my first solo production it was in color, um, which was fantastic because yeah, I mean it it, it was Rolling Stone's album of the year that that year and I, I just I got really lucky um, I got really lucky they were they, they were a producers dream that band how so oh they were they were great <laughs> each one of them was really good on on his instrument or his voice I mean Robin Zander Bunny Carlos the best drummer I I ever worked with as much for what he didn't play as for what he did and right. they were funny, they were smart, they were bright, they were focused, they were, you know, it was, they were unique. I mean, you, you know, I had never come across an eight-string bass or a 12-string bass before, and, and, and Tom Peterson did that. Um, Robin could, could do two complete songs in one afternoon, um, whereas some other singers that I had to work with uh, over the years could maybe do a few lines in, in the afternoon. That's vocal lines. Huh? <laughs> right. And, right, uh, right. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, uh, it, it was just very easy. We would, we would do all the basic tracks in two or three days and that would be drums and bass. And uh, Dr Bunny would hang a sign on his snare drum that said gone fishing. And he, he would fly back to Rockford, Illinois and that was that was the last we saw of him, you know, until, uh, you know, un until the album was released. You know, you know, it's amazing about Cheap Trick, too. I can't this this is 
for the life of me, I can't quite figure out why this is, but you could say this about a lot of bands. I mean, endless great songs, great records, including, by the way, a band that is still making really good new music. Very few bands from that era. I don't know if you've kept up with what they do recently, but I think their new stuff is real good as well, which is uh, very rare when you have a catalog like that to still even make new music, but still doing that stuff. But I don't understand for the life of me, Tom, and we know that when you had them and those those landmark records, Heaven Tonight, In Color, Dream Police, the pinnacle, they got to an arena level, but it didn't maintain. Like, even now, I, they're, the, they're the perennial opening act for, say, the Aerosmiths of the world or whoever it may be. They, they just, for whatever reason, as great as yep. they still are, the new music, the live shows, they didn't hold that arena headlining status. And when you think about the hits they have and everything, it just blows my mind that they don't have a bigger standing in, in classic rock these days. Yep. I, well, I feel that way about several bands that, that, that I did. Um, you know, they, uh, I don't want to, you know, blow my horn too loudly here, but, uh, just about every band I work with um, had their biggest album with me. Um, Cheap Trick, of course, had Budokan, and you know, and that was huge. Motley Crue had Doctor Feelgood after Girls, 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 and I didn't do Doctor Feelgood, and it outsold that. But you know, I caught a lot of bands at their peak. Um, you know, songwriters and, and musicians and bands, they they do. Uh, uh, they rise and, and then they fall. Um, you know, you, there are songwriters, brilliant songwriters, you know, like, uh, I don't know, James Taylor, Don Henley, who, who, who make these classic songs. And then after a certain point, they, there, there are no more. And, and I'm not sure why that happens, but I think that happened a little bit with Cheap Trick. And I thought they, I thought they should have been enormous. And and there are so many other songs than uh, "I Want You to Want Me" and "Surrender," you know that 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 should have been big hits. Right, but my point, my point about it is, even if they never had another hit past say '82, and they did with the flame and all of that, but even yeah. if you're just looking at. In Color, Heaven Tonight, Dream Police, that period alone, to me, and Budokan, of course, that more than should carry them to a level where you'd think now they they are, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong, they do fine business, but you know what I'm saying? They're just not at that echelon, and you're right, there are other artists that you could say that about. You could say it about Nugent, but we know for Nugent, he's discriminated because of his position on things, so you, you can kind of understand, you can kind of figure that one out, but with Cheap Trick, they're still good. It's still three quarters the original band. Robin still sings like a bird. It's just, yeah. it, it's just odd that they don't get, you know, they don't do... 8,000 people a night as a headliner on their own. It's just, uh, it's, a, it's always been a strange one because of how good they are. I agree. I, I'm, I asked the same question. Um, you know, they, they were, they were clearly the, uh, the most wonderful band uh, to work with. That was, you know, the, the most enjoyable experience I ever had in the studio. Um, you know, and 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 by by that token, I, sh- I I would think that they they would have been huge, um, because uh, you know Motley Crue and Twisted Sister, and Poison, they were all fine, but 
I didn't have as much fun with them as I did with Cheap Trick. Well, let's get to that while I have time. And again, the book is called Turn It Up. It's out now. We're talking with producer Tom Werman, who either signed, produced, and or did both on some of these artists and some of these legendary records. Feel the pulse of the city. Feel the beat of the drum. Feel the bass blow your hair. In Las Vegas, live music delivers much more than sound. It's where music comes alive. With artists like Megan Thee Stallion, Maroon 5, Carrie Underwood, Shania Twain, Babyface, Lionel Richie, and many more. Every show is a playground for your senses. See the full summer lineup at visitlasvegas.com. Myrtle Beach is the beach. 60 miles of bright sand, water, and a wealth of wonderful music playing day and night. You can step into a simple beach bar and discover a surprising level of exciting musical talent. A place to kick back and groove to the enticing soundtrack of the most unexpected vacations around. With nothing but good vibes floating through the warm ocean air. Plan your own music-filled trip to America's Jukebox at visitmyrtlebeach.com. Who doesn't love a classic chocolate chip cookie? Famous Amos has been making them since the 70s, 1975 to be exact. With semi-sweet chocolate chips and a satisfying crunch, it's everything classic in one bite-sized cookie. And fans couldn't get enough. That's right. You'll find our original recipe, the one you know and love, in every bag of Famous Amos original chocolate chip cookies. Find Famous Amos anywhere you buy your favorite snacks. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader. So, Motley, you come into the Motley picture. You didn't sign Motley. That was where you, you were brought in as a producer. They were signed to Elektra Records. First yeah. album, Too Fast for Love. I know that there was a mix that Michael Wagner did. There was a mix that Roy Thomas Baker did. There was, there was a history. And that, and that record, song-wise, is still my favorite. They're first. But then Shout at the Devil is where you jump in, which is also considered a classic record. And at least for me as a kid, being into, intensely into the music at that point, uh, Motley got way darker and way heavier the look everything about it where that first album had elements of glam and pop and all these different things then then motley that i think that was motley's most metal period shout at the devil in all ways but there's been so much said about motley especially recently there was even stuff that came out that bob rock had to clarify about their ability as musicians so here you are producing them on their second record what did you find in Motley Crue as musicians? What were your thoughts at that time? Well, you know, Tommy and uh, Mick were always superb. Uh, you know, they were focused and really good. Mick, I think, is a heavily underrated guitar player. Um, Tommy was one of the two best uh, I ever worked with uh, as a drummer. Uh, Nicky uh, became a good bass player over the years. Um, he was okay then. Um, one of the problems was he had smashed his car up, and, and uh, you know he ran into a utility pole, and he had to play all his bass parts with his arm in a sling. Um, it was tough. It was tough, and it took a long time. Um, Vince was, you know, he was 
he was hard, uh, you know, because he could sing, but he didn't train. He he didn't know the meaning of the word training. He Vince isn't the type of guy who who would say, uh, "Girls, it's midnight, and I've got to sing tomorrow, so I think I'm going to bed." <laughs> no <laughs> that, discipline. That just, it just wasn't Vince, <laughs> right. you know. So yeah, they, 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 it was tough. And then they got to be, you know, by the time we did "Girls, Girls, Girls," which was my favorite sonically, um, they were good. You know they were tight. You 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 play as long as they as they did. Um, you, you're going to be really really tight, like the like the Beatles after four years in Hamburg or whatever it was. Um, so, you know, even early Tom, even early on, were was Nikki the clear cut leader, primary songwriter? Even when you was that kind of established to you right yeah. when you dove in, started working with them? Yeah, yeah I would say he was definitely the brains behind the outfit. Uh, Tommy was in there too. Um, they were the two, um, you know, spark plugs for the band. Uh, Nick was very quiet, very cooperative, very well prepared and very good. Um, the reason I like girls, girls, girls so much is because his guitar tech, uh, he got a new guitar tech then and, and his guitar tech knew what he was doing. And I love that guitar sound. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't love, I I think that that shout of the devil, which is clearly the fans favorite. Um, I think it's a little sludgy, you know, it's a little, a little dark, a little muffled. Um, and I'm a, you know, I'm a pop guy. Uh, the, the reason, one of the reasons I was successful then in that, in that era was that, um, I made, um, singles. With, with bands that would not have been on AM radio without those singles, many power ballads, you know, home sweet home and every rose and uh, don't close your eyes. Uh, uh, so, so, you know, the, 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 the heaviness um, was the band. Uh, I uh, listened to shout at the devil and I said, well, you know, I think we could get a little better guitar sound. I think we could do this. I could do that. And then, um, you know, you, you, you had, you, I had to change their sound a little bit in order to get them on AM radio. And a hit single, as you know, um, generates millions of album sales. So, and that was my, uh, that was the whole way I was raised, you know, or trained um, as as a producer. Make hits. Sure. Thank you. Yeah, and, and you know, one more thing on Motley, and before we hit a couple other bands, the the I always look at the arc of Motley and Theater of Pain. At least in my opinion, was a huge drop off in terms of material, and I know that's really where the drugs started hitting and all of that. But if you didn't yeah. have Home Sweet Home on there. And right. to some degree, smoking in the boys' room, the cover, that record really could have been, that could have really changed the trajectory of Motley. Those, those songs not only saved that record, but may have saved their career because they, that, that was, uh, outside of that, that record left, in my opinion, a lot to be desired. I didn't think it was nearly up to the previous record material-wise. Well, that's, yeah, that's the general opinion. Um, one of the reasons for that is that, uh, you know, a band will make, a, a, an early record, a debut record say, and, and it's a, all of a sudden it's, it, it, it explodes. Uh, 
like Shout at the Devil. becomes a huge hit. So uh, w- what happens, they r- rush you back into the studio. They book a huge tour behind the second record, you know, the, the next record you're going to do. And instead of uh, having uh, to record many songs that you had been playing for years, you've got to write 12 new songs, good ones, quickly. And, and then you've got to get, get them done and get out of the studio and onto the road in a hurry because there's a deadline and the agents have booked this big tour and that leads to stress. And of course, (laughs) stress leads to self-medication and uh, it's just really tough for bands, uh, uh, you know, you know, that that happens to. So uh, yeah, it was, there were more drugs. Um, There, there was not as much great material. But that was, I think that was the main reason. It, 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 it just puts a huge strain on the band. And we should tell people, and they can read more about this in your book, that you, although you lived the, the heyday here and you certainly lived the life and had your fun in New York and L.A. and the cars and the expense accounts and being around these guys, and you dabbled around the edges a little bit, but you never yourself went off the rails. I mean, according to the book, at least, I mean, there are producers who <laughs> were casualties of all of this. But you, it, my takeaway, Tom, was you had some fun and you enjoyed the life at that time, but you didn't go off the rails like some of these other guys did. You held it together. Well, yeah, I was married. I had three children. Uh, I was happily married. And, I, you know, I, I wanted to succeed. Um, uh, I loved what I was doing. And in order to continue doing it, I had to be, uh, have, you know, achieve some measure of success. Um, I had never uh, gone into the, the psychedelics uh, or, the, or acid or anything uh, uh, you know, I had a couple of a, a couple of party favorite drugs, you know, and in L.A. in in the 70s and 80s, you couldn't avoid it. It it, it was an amazing time, um, Sodom and Gomorrah. It, you know, it's just it was just a, 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 an amazing uh, place with with uh, everybody living a bit of life in the fast lane. Um, but I but. I, you know, you have to maintain a little bit of authority. You, you've mm. got to have a little bit of respect from the band. And if you're, you know, laid out on the floor unconscious, um, you know, you might have had a good time. They might have been, you know, hey, look, Worms, you know, he's one of us. You don't want to be one of them. You do not want to be one of them. You want to, you want to, to join the band, but you don't want to get too close to them. You've got to be a director. You've got to be a guide. You've got to be an advisor. That's the deal. A couple more. Yeah. No, a Go couple ahead. more I want to hit you with before we run out of time, uh, yeah. Tom. I want to ask you about Poison because you, did, you mentioned Every Rose and you talk about the origins of that song and how you first heard Brett singing it and writing it and you, you, what that's become. But you did that uh, that second Poison record, Open Up and Say Ah, which was an enormous record. What were your thoughts about Poison early on as well? Because that's another band that, uh, again, all these guys are friends and I'm a fan of all of them, but that's a band that often gets hit and maligned for their level of musicianship and are they good players and were they good players then and or they're ghost musicians 
uh, there's on some of these records, which we found out over time. For you, you're getting poison now after they made a record, after they had done some touring. A second record, what did you find them to be? Well, I never, uh, I, I did not like to bring in ghost, as you say, musicians, session guys. I, I think I hired five session guys over 52 albums, and they didn't do more than one song each, except for uh, Mickey Raphael, who did, I think, two or three harmonica solos on the Poison record, because uh, I don't think Brett had time. I think they had to leave and, and, and go on tour. But I hired Mickey, who, strangely enough, is Willie Nelson's harmonica player. And uh, I'll tell you, the band worked hard. There were no there were no, uh, you know, substitutes. There were no session guys. There were no ringers. It was all poison. And I didn't, you know, they weren't the, the most accomplished band musically. Um, but when I was introduced to them and, and, and we had lunch and uh, we, we talked and I was sitting next to Cece, which is quite an experience. And, yeah. and, and, and between them all, Bobby and Ricky and, and, and Brett, I mean, they were, they were a very colorful uh, band of personalities. And um, I, I thought, you know, this could be good. This could be fun. And, uh, and we did it. And fortunately, I mean, we had, we had three top 10 singles and one that reached number 12. Never happened with any other album I ever did. And uh, they, they just worked hard and they did party. But, you know, they they worked hard enough to get that album out and uh, they never, never said, I can't do this. And Ricky was a very hard worker. And and he always said, you know, uh, one time he said to me, look, I know I'm not the greatest drummer in the world, but, you know, I try. And that was very true. He's he's a really uh, a good guy and a hard worker. And look at the way they sound. You know, that's all them. And and to this day, you know, I, I have an enormous, enormous issue with bands playing live to tracks and faking it and oh, canned yeah. vocals and all that stuff. It's an epidemic. I think it's really what threatens live shows more than anything. And yeah. Poison, Poison is still the same four guys, even though whatever level of dysfunction there is among them, and we know that's well documented, <laughs> Uh, they are still the same, like you can count on a hand the bands that have all original members. And when they play, they proudly play truly live. I mean, they they bring an offstage keyboard player. My buddy Will Dowdy plays keys and sings for them. They introduce yeah. them. They put them on the stage, helping us out on backing vocals. I mean, I think, you know, yeah. the, for the hits they take, they actually held it together when they do play live. And they actually do play live when they play live. So I got a lot of respect for them. Right. You know... I always liked to bring in a, a keyboard player, um, you know, after we had everything recorded and, and uh, you know, embellish and, 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 and arrange and, and do, do stuff with, with the keyboards, either, a, you know, a piano or an electric piano or a Hammond organ. And uh, they would occasionally in those days, they would put a, uh, that keyboard player or a keyboard player offstage to play uh, on the on those songs because they didn't have a keyboard player, uh, but he was off stage most of the time, and I think it's great. I haven't seen Poison lately, but I think it's 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 just a, a, a really good thing. 
uh, it, it says a lot for them that they uh, bring the guy right out and say, hey, yeah. here's a keyboard player. He's, he's going to help us out, uh, you know, especially help us out on, on backing vocals. <laughs> you know? Yeah, Aerosmith does the same thing. I mean, they'll introduce the guy and he's there and he's, you know, he, Stephen will say, come on, sing with me, you know, and Buck, let's do yeah. this. And it's, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that at all. I mean, I, I, have, I have no issue with that. But, uh, yeah, and Poison doesn't operate all that often. It's mainly bred as a solo act, but the, they occasionally yeah. will get together and did that big you know, run with Motley and all of that. I want to ask you about a band that, and I think that this, the one record you did for them is probably the, maybe the big, not only their biggest record by a mile, but I think probably in your catalog, the record that sold the most. And that's Twisted Sisters Stay Hungry. And that's yeah. a band that you obviously, well, at least when it comes to D, you've had a very um, no, contentious no. relationship where he has kind of said some things that you debunk in the book that we're that you didn't want we're not going to take it on the record and all of that um what can you say about twisted and why do you believe or why do you think if those things are untrue that d has said that sort of stuff well um the producer does not have uh, the power to say you can't do that he said that i wouldn't allow them to do that and that he had to get down on his knees and beg I didn't think much of we're not going to take it. I'll, I'll admit it. I thought it sounded a little bit like a nursery rhyme, um, which apparently made it pretty easy to sing in the shower. So, um, you know, that's, that is true. But here's D, who, who was very agreeable during the whole album until he walked out the door. Um, he had been working with that band for, I don't know, seven t- years, ten years. Um, they were doing okay in Europe. But he, you know, he was a, he is a hard worker, uh, dedicated, uh, and and uh, here I come along with you know my gold and platinum records, and and we have a huge record. It sells like five six million copies, and he, uh, I'm I'm assuming said, oh yeah, well, you know, everyone's going to say, well, of course they had a hit. Well, you know, Worman did it, and and and, and he does that. Um, and I think that he was just uh, very reluctant to share credit. But that's my, that, that's what I think. He was, uh, <laughs> I mean, stunningly uh, uh, rude. And, and uh, you know, in, in his book, he actually says, and this is pretty, this is a pretty strange thing to say. Um, he said, I, I believe that Tom Worman personally, or n- not personally, but, I believe that Tom Worman destroyed our album, which happened to sell six million copies. Uh, it, it doesn't make sense to me, but honestly, Eddie, uh, it, it's too—it's late. I don't care anymore. I'm retired. I'm having a great time. Dee's rich, and and you know, uh, you're welcome, Dee. Enjoy it. When the record was done. Was the and then and started to take off. Did you sense that sort of vibe right out of the gate, well, or was that sort of thing developed as the record got bigger? And it sounds like you're saying he he wanted to just wrestle credit away from anyone else but himself, yeah. essentially, as the sole songwriter. Well, no, it it, it became uh, evident right away that there that there was something uh, dark about D. 
because I, I took my uh, my wife and uh, little little da- daughter who was like three years old in my arms up to this very hot outdoor gig in New Hampshire, and and, and we waited like 30, 35 minutes outside the tour bus afterward to say hello. Nobody came out. Nobody told us that we weren't welcome. And uh, I know it was, you know, it's just D saying, screw this guy. We're not going to, we're not dealing with him. And, uh, you know, the other guys are great. JJ, I've seen JJ since then. And, and, you know, he's a, he's, he's a good guy. He means what he says. He says what he means. All the others were fine too, but you know, look, these these guys, uh, you 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 never can tell what is uh, inspiring them to do or say certain things. But that's his issue. That's his problem. I'm 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 okay. I'm very I'm very happy. A few more I'm going to hit you with, and then I'll let you go. I appreciate all the time, Tom. Sure. The, uh... The 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 other stuff here that that I want to touch on maybe some of the records that did well but not to the level we're talking about. You worked with Kicks, a band that just retired. You did Blow My Fuse and Hot Wire, uh, another band that although they did well, I thought they could have had much yeah. greater success actually. Yeah, uh, I, I I do too. Um, you know they had a they, they had a pretty obvious ACDC influence. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, you know, I, and I think that may have kind of um, blunted their their impact because uh, when you have Back in Black, um, I'm not sure you need uh, Blow My Fuse, but I, I, you know, they're a great rock and roll band, really great rock and roll band. Um, I, I enjoyed those. I enjoyed those two records. Um, Donnie was a bit of an issue, but. Uh, you know, uh, again, the other three guys were great, especially Steve you, and, and you, Brian. Yeah, you um, you also uh, worked in some capacity on Doc and Tooth and Nail. You cover yeah. that in the book because that kind of changed gears on you. And you you reference in the book and you talk about that even then on the second Doc and record, there was already dysfunction between George and Don that it made it almost impossible to work with them but you do talk about the guitar solo in the song itself Tooth and Nail is in your view being one of the great solos ever absolutely anyone can listen to that and say whoa Um, you know there are certain things that stand out uh, in the the guitar world Um, you know Hotel California um, one of my favorite parts uh, is Tom Petty. Uh, Mike Campbell's playing in in the last minute of Running Down a Dream, mm-hmm. um, and George Lynch's solo on Tooth and Nail is killer. Um, you know, George. You know, George and Don would not uh, be in the studio at the same time. Yeah, I had completed the recording pretty much. Um, and it was so difficult to, uh, to continue. And I had, I had trouble with the engineer. And so I decided to walk and I talked to their manager. We made a deal and Mike Wagner, Michael Wagner came in, um, and, and remixed the record. And uh, he mixed the record after I had finished recording it and 
he did a great job. Um, you know, this this happens. David Gilmore and Roger Waters won't talk to each other. Uh, Ray and Dave Davies don't talk to each other. It's 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 weird. It's ridiculous. But and that's the way it goes. You, know? you also did an L.A. Guns record. That's a good one as well. Cocked and Loaded uh, band again. That's that's still active and fair share of dysfunction and stuff that went on there. But that's a really, really good record. What were your thoughts about working with them early on? Well, you know, I, at that point, I was getting a little bit detached from my job. Uh, the, the, I had two guys that I worked with, my engineer, Dwayne Barron, and his friend who he uh, brought in, um, and, and we operated as a trio. Uh, John Pradell was his, was his name. And I let them do half that record. Um, at, you know, as as producers, uh, I think I kept Rip and Tear, which I loved, and um, the What Happened to Jane. I, I I'm not Ballad sure of Jane. That one. Yeah. Yeah, that's their biggest uh, Ballad song. Ballad of Jane, yeah. right? And you know, so that honestly was not, uh, you know, that that wasn't one of the albums that I remember as being. Um, a lot, uh, either a lot of fun or or really musically su- uh, superior or any. It was a good album, um, but but really uh, didn't 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 make a big uh, uh, impression on my uh, <laughs> my my musical memory. Some don't. Yeah, and you also I wanted to mention real quick. You produced a record by a band called Love Hate, uh, Blackout yeah. in the Red Room which that was a band that I felt kind of fell between two worlds. Like coming out in 9091, we all know everything changed for everybody in 91 when Nirvana comes out. Right. But I, I right. feel like if Love Hate would have almost come out, uh, they, they were still marketed as part of that 80s scene. I almost feel like they were way more raw than that and way more street than that, that they could have Absolutely. almost kind of gotten over that, maybe a touch ahead of their time in some ways. Yeah. Uh, great band, Real, really great band. And uh, why do you think they call it dope? That's that yeah. song. It should have been a huge hit. Uh, it was a wonderful song. And uh, the, the, I don't know. I, I'm not sure what what happened there. I tried to sign them to my production company, and Columbia Records kind of stole them uh, away from me. I introduced them to Columbia, and then Columbia went around me and signed them directly. And they gave them so much money that there wasn't very much left to support uh, their their tour, and uh, hmm. I think that was that was one of the problems. But yes, there's another band that that should have been much bigger. You know, everything has to be right uh, when you when you put a, a record out. Everything has to be right. Uh, all the departments of the label and the timing and the music and the, uh, you know the tour and the agency and the promotion people. If one of those things isn't happening, you know, the record can just go by the boards. And I think that's what happened with them. And you did the one striper record against the law where they went darker and got away from the religious thing, right? Right. They, um, they were, they were wonderful people or are wonderful. Still are. Oh yeah. 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 Great. Uh, uh, you know, Michael Sweet just a wonderful guy they, they they were they were such good people they probably the, the you know uh i i don't know what adjective to apply to them but 
but uh, fine human beings. And uh, and we we made a a good album. I thought maybe what was it Shining Star uh, could have been. Um, I don't remember the single from that album. Um, you know, I'm 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 sorry about uh, my forgetting certain things, but we we you know I'm I'm moving on. It's a long time and, ago. Uh, and, yeah. and, and it was 40, 40 uh, or sometimes at least 35 or 40 years ago. And, uh, you know, I, I, and, and out of the, all of the 52 albums that, that I produced, some, uh, it's hard for me to remember <laughs> certain tracks. So, uh, yeah, no, no I, doubt. That's I, more than understandable. Yeah. Um, last, last one that I want to hit you with, and then I'm going to let you go because uh, I'm running out of time, but I enjoy yeah. this so much. So, 2001, and this is probably one of the last things you did in your career before you retired, but you worked on the soundtrack to the movie Rockstar, the Mark Wahlberg movie, loosely based on this Judas Priest story. Um, So you basically were brought in on that to basically be the music consultant and create the soundtrack? I produced the whole soundtrack, yeah. Uh, So I had to to take songs and, and produce you know, one song for Steel Dragon and then produced the same song for Blood Pollution, their tribute band, and make it sound not quite as good. (laughs) Every song had to be like that. And, uh, and it was, it was a a very surprising experience for me. Uh, Number one, absolutely uh, awe inspiring to watch a movie be made. I used to think a producer, uh, you know, that it was tough to be a record producer, but but the job of a movie director is just mind blowing. Um, it, it was great, Zach. Uh, it, it was a little difficult. Zach Wild and uh, Jason Bonham, um, not not the most compatible duo on the planet. <laughs> You, you mentioned, real quick on that, Tom, you mentioned that in the book, and I know both of them very well, and I know back then both of them drank, and I know that when oh, yeah. Zach oh, drank, yeah. I mean, I did ton, I have tons of Zach drunk stories. He's been sober for a while now, Jason as well, but was it an alcohol thing, or they just didn't get along back then? It was, well, both. Uh, I'm not sure if they would have gotten along in the absence of alcohol, but it was definitely an alcohol thing uh, for a while. And then, and, and that, that's why I had Jeff Pilson on bass. You know, he was, I, I met him when, when, when he was in Dawkins. And right. uh, I, I hired him because he was a great bass player, but also he was a very good uh, negotiator. He was, uh, he was straight. He was uh, uh, diligent, uh, and, you know, and focused. And he could, kind of make peace between those two because i i sure couldn't uh, mm. but but they they were both great i mean at one point jason uh looked at me and said listen i have a reputation to uphold <laughs> you know uh <laughs> you know thinking he had to live up to his father's reputation and uh yeah i said okay all right and 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 i worked with them both uh and they both um did did really good work um, it, it's a shame about that movie because it came out a week before 9-11 and, mm. and it, it was just completely lost. Um, so, you know, I, 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 I think it did well on video, but it was a good movie. And, and I think, and it's still, yeah. Yeah. And it's still, a, it's still a cult classic movie. And actually 
the the song Stand Up, which is uh, featured in it, I, I had no idea until recently, and I know this guy extraordinarily well. He's playing a private show for me, actually, on Monday. I had no idea yeah. Sammy Hagar wrote that song. That that's an old, oh, was a Sammy Hagar song. That. Yeah, I yeah. didn't know that either. That's a very interesting. Stand Up and Shout. Yeah. Stand up and shout. He actually had recorded it. Like, there's a version of it. It's on one of his records. But somehow that got sourced as being a signature song in, in the Rockstar movie. And the other thing yeah. I always wanted to ask you is, obviously, Mark Wahlberg is not singing the stuff. You use Jeff no. Scott Soto and the singer from Steelheart, um, Mike, or Michael, his real name's Mealy Matevic. Michael Matevic. Yes. Why yeah. two different singers instead of one to do the lead vocal for, for Wahlberg? You know, I'm not exactly sure why we did that, but they both had stratospheric ranges. You know, they, they could both go way up. I, uh, you know, I, I think Jeff was a little stronger than, than Michael, uh, but I'm not sure why we had both of them they, they I, I'm sure that there was a need for Jeff because because, uh, uh, you know, Mike was the only singer for a while uh, until uh, obviously something uh, presented itself and he couldn't do it. Or I thought Jeff might be able to do it better. Mm. And I'd used Jeff. Uh, I had used Jeff before, uh, you know, for backing vocals with with right. bands. Yeah, right. Well, the stories are endless, and I could talk to you forever about them, but I would suggest everybody in my audience right now to get way more detail because we're just scratching the surface on Tom, his story, uh, the records, the bands, the artists he worked with. Again, the book is out now. It's called Turn It Up, My Time-Making Hit Records in the Glory Days of Rock Music with the guy that we've been talking with here for, for better than an hour, uh, Tom Worman. Tom, just in closing, um, anything you want to mention out there? And also, I know that you're retired now, but you do run – it's an inn or a bed and breakfast or something in the New England area, right? No, well, we did for 20 years, and we sold it three years ago. I am uh, blissfully retired, and, mm. and you know, and I got a chance to finish the book, uh, you know, which is great. I'm I'm delighted with the reception that the that the book has gotten. But yeah, I mean, after 5,000 goat cheese and mushroom omelets. Uh, I was ready to hang it up. <laughs> I was ready to hang up my apron. You know, you know, Michael Sweet lives up in your neck of the woods. You guys, you should look him up. I could connect you guys if you want. You could go reminisce about the old times. <laughs> I thought he was on the Cape. I thought he was on Cape Cod. But, but uh, you know, maybe, he I'm not sure. He, what? Maybe he is. I'm not sure. I thought he was somewhere. I thought he was in New Hampshire, maybe. I don't know. Could be wrong. I, I got to check. I just spoke with him. I, I didn't. I'm not. I know he's somewhere up that way. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah he's worked with. He, it's amazing. He's he's worked since then with three of the bands that I that I produced. I, I think he was in Boston for a while. Right. And, right. And, and then there were there were two others that he that he was in. I think he actually worked with George. He uh, made a couple records with George. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Crazy. sweetheart, great guy. Yeah, for sure. Well, listen, I, I can't thank you enough for the time. Congrats on the book. Thank you as a rock fan. Thank you for all the great records you've made and the artists you've brought to us. Uh, I appreciate it. And we still, uh, me and my audience still listens to a lot of these records uh, every day. As a matter of fact, I just got the 
40th anniversary super deluxe of Shout at the Devil uh, turned up in my mail not too long ago. And uh, this stuff just keeps going on. It'll go on long after you and I are gone, Tom. So that's got to be a good feeling for you having made it. Yeah, uh, it was a privilege here, uh, you know, for me to be on uh, on your show on Sirius XM and, and an honor. And thanks a lot for, uh, for, for, for this chat. Tom, thank you. Best of luck with the book going forward. You know where to get me. Keep me posted on anything else you got going on. And uh, thank you again for the time. Appreciate it. Have a great sure. holiday. You too. Bye-bye. Well, thanks to Tom Worman. Check out his book. It is out now. I could easily have talked to that guy for a couple more hours. So many great stories and so many incredible records that he has been a part of. Uh, in his career when he was active as a record producer. Hey, I didn't get a chance at the top of the show to thank everybody. I mean, I, uh, I I forget that, you know, some of you guys listening to the podcast maybe don't listen to my radio show, but obviously I had a massive event a week ago this past Monday at the House of Blues in Vegas to celebrate my 40th year in radio, and I can't even begin to run down the artists who appeared, attended, played, everybody, but, you know, of course, Sammy Hagar and Michael Anthony, who were announced, Mike Portnoy, Brent Woods doing the music, but above and beyond that, Alice Cooper was there, Geezer Butler was there, Ace Freely was there, it was a who's who of rock royalty, cannot thank all the artists, cannot thank all the fans, the vibe was incredible, and if you do listen to my radio show every day, you know people have been calling in saying... Uh, They think it's not only the show of the year, but maybe one of the greatest shows they've ever seen in their life. So I cannot thank those enough who played, attended, celebrated with me. Uh, Again, way too many to name, but uh, know it was greatly appreciated. An incredibly special night for me that couldn't have gone better. So thank you all. If you were there, if you heard about it, there was stuff all over online. There's a ton of videos that people shot on YouTube. We have professional video of the entire concert not sure what we're going to be able to do with that we're going to start exploring that soon we raised some great funds for the deal cancer fund just an incredible incredible evening at the house of blues in vegas on december 11th thank you to all and what a way to celebrate my 40 years in broadcasting and hey on to year 41 next year so Uh, We will leave you with that, and I wish you all a very, very Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, uh, Happy Holidays, whatever it is that you celebrate. And again, uh, next podcast, of course, next Thursday. Every Thursday you get a new one here on the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Be sure to subscribe. And again, uh, don't forget, check me out on SiriusXM every day, even during the holidays, most except for actually on the holidays, working most of the days around the holidays. And you can uh, listen live, 3 to 5 Eastern, noon to 2 Pacific, Faction Talk 103 for Trunk Nation. Have a great one, everybody. I'll talk to you uh, here on the podcast next week. Feel the pulse of the city. Feel the beat of the drum. Feel the bass blow your hair. In Las Vegas, live music delivers much more than sound. It's where music comes alive. With artists like Megan Thee Stallion, Maroon 5, Carrie Underwood, Shania Twain, Babyface, Lionel Richie, and many more. Every show is a playground for your senses. See the full summer lineup at visitlasvegas.com. 
Myrtle Beach is the beach. 60 miles of bright sand, water, and a wealth of wonderful music playing day and night. You can step into a simple beach bar and discover a surprising level of exciting musical talent. A place to kick back and groove to the enticing soundtrack of the most unexpected vacations around. With nothing but good vibes floating through the warm ocean air. Plan your own music field trip to America's Jukebox at visitmyrtlebeach.com.